All right, and we are live. Um, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Stories from a Mountain Town. Uh, this is your host, Tyler. And today with me, I have Scott Austin, right? Is that your last name? Yep. Uh, Scott Austin. Um, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Yeah. Um, and Scott is actually, I, I won't butcher anything with uh, telling them who you are and what you do. Tell them a little bit about yourself. Um, originally from Illinois. Moved out here shortly after high school, did a little bit of college, uh, ended up going to a college down in Colorado um, with my now wife, but we actually met here in Jackson Hole. Um, Her father runs a Christian camp here on the Village Road, and I used to come out with a youth group from Illinois each summer and uh, ended up falling in love with this other staff girl and... (laughs) Married the owner's daughter and gained job security, so I've been here ever since. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And um, and uh, and that's your so tell you were just tell me about your what your main your main job is. What do you do there for the camp? So um, we run a one year Bible college, technically nine months, but we've got twenty four students this year, um, and it's basically an overview of the Bible in nine months, mm. and we'll travel for about six weeks out of that time. Uh, on the road, uh, love to study geology more from a creationist perspective, a, a Christian perspective, mm. and um, so we're typically hitting anywhere from twelve to fifteen different parks and national monuments all over the West, and uh, so we started that Bible college in '97. Um, we run a camp program through the summer, so I direct the camp program in the summer, mm-hmm. and that's where I've done a lot of work with backpacking and, and hiking and whatnot in the Tetons, as well as the wind. So you and I had a, an experience here in Jackson talking about backcountry awareness with regard to bears, and that's where I got my experience doing that. Yeah. Lots of time in the backcountry. Yeah, um, fantastic. So yeah, dean of students at the Bible College, and then I uh, also work for Jackson Hole Shooting Experience as a senior lead instructor, and as as well as with their Nomad Long Range Rifle Program. So we take people out and shoot out over a mile. Yeah, yeah. I always see those advert in, in the. I go to the Teton Sports Club gym, yeah. and you have one of the, your ads is in there is like shoot over a mile. Yeah, and it was I don't know, some guy like grinning, like smiling over yeah, a rifle. Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, so I think I I think I've talked about it on on the show before, but I uh, last fall my dad wanted me to get uh, he didn't like how many grizzly stories he was reading in the area so he wanted me to get uh some sort of handgun to help um defend myself in the backcountry because i'm out in the backcountry all the time um and so he looked it up looked up like you know whether it's lesson or like what you do and found you guys and hooked it up and it was a great time i love i was telling you this when we were out there I ha- always have a lot of fun shooting and whether it's like shooting at targets or clay pigeons or anything like that. But um, I haven't gotten a ton of experience because I didn't really grow up with guns. Sure. So that was a, that, that day helped me a ton, just get way more comfortable with the movements and, you know, you always want to be respecting what the gun can do. And so learning how to handle it with respect to what, to that, to that yep. point. Absolutely. And tell them, tell the audience um, the tip you told me, I think you got it from like your grandpa or something of, uh, the idea of why or how to keep your like barrel down range at all times, the laser so thing. He, uh, he basically said, pretend you've got a laser beam coming out the end of your muzzle, out the yeah. end of your barrel. Yeah. And wherever that's pointing, it's destroying everything in its path. Mm-hmm. And that just um, was burned into my memory, literally, Yeah. with regard to not doing that. And of course, he ended up 
having a situation when he was 18, a hunting accident where his girlfriend was killed. Mm. So uh, he was not um, the kindest, gentlest uh, gun instructor I've ever been with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was all all business and no yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, however, my dad, he was much more calm about it and had a much better time shooting with my dad. Mm. But the safety aspect was drilled home by my grandfather for mm-hmm. sure. Definitely. So did you, you grew up uh, in Illinois where you're like near a city or like where? What yeah, in Peoria, Illinois? Illinois. Oh, I've been there. Yeah. I I played, so I played um, football in college for a school in Duluth, Minnesota. Okay. And then in our conference we had um, Greenville. Yep. Uh, where my dad went to college, by the way. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Greenville, um, Eureka. <laughs> Yep, where Ronald where Reagan. Ronald Reagan's from. We had a yep. staff member from there. Yeah, yeah, yep. and they're they're so they're like wellness centers, like the Ronald Reagan Wellness Center or yep. whatever. So I always thought that was cool. We got that's where we'd go change for the games. Sure. And where else? Um, this isn't in Missouri, but not too far from Illinois is uh, like Westminster College or something. Westminster okay. University, of Westminster. But yeah, it was like it, small D three football so like all the sure. colleges were really spread out it was like us in northern minnesota one of the twin cities some iowa did you play some... bethel up in minnesota we played yeah they're not in our conference but okay. we played against them once in the playoffs because yeah. the, the main minnesota conference is um the mayak and uh, that's like st john's st thomas right. bethel all those ones and then right. mine was a smaller conference uh, my school is now in the mayak as of like last year but yeah i played we went to Taylor and I both went to the College of St. Scholastica. Okay. So, yeah. Benedictine, a, a school that was started by Benedictine nuns. Okay. And they still run the show. Wow. Like, my, I, it just so happened that my, um, my grandma's sister was like one of the, is one of the longest standing nuns there. She like celebrated her like 80th, they, wow. call, they have a word for it, but like anniversary of being a nun there. Yeah. And they like, they're, they're, their boss, they they run the show oh, there. Yeah. Oh yeah, like they had a vote. It was kind of an inter- interesting dynamic because I, they they added football or I'll go back farther. They were an all girls school until like the eighties. Then they added guys, and then they started adding guy sports along the way. And I think it was like two thousand eleven, or ten that they added football, um, and then I started there in two thousand twelve, and so when they were considering whether to get the to start the program. They let the nuns have a vote because they're a part of the school or whatever. And the nuns, led by my great aunt, said, no, we don't want to have the program. And then her relative now is in the program. You're like, thanks a lot. Yeah. But she had actually had a decent reason. It wasn't like, we don't think they're good men. It was like, sure, we they, they did research on the concussion issues yep. and they didn't want to like put, support the, the, gotcha. that stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. But it was always a funny dynamic going on. I'd go to dinners with her like every other week or something and it was walk i would like walk around she'd tour me around like their section of the campus yeah it was always an interesting dynamic back there because she like knows everybody yeah 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 my mom worked for a uh, saint francis hospital in peoria and so it was also you know managed by nuns primarily yeah and so uh definitely a different dynamic Mm -hmm. um good good hospital though for sure Yeah. yeah yeah that's what um so taylor's a nurse and uh one of the main majors there is nursing and teaching, which is like yeah. obvious. That's what the nuns like knew how to do. So like they would teach, they would have that oh, yeah. as majors when they started the school. Oh yeah. 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 That's what my mom did. She taught for 26 years, OBGYN. Yeah. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, Taylor's a labor and delivery nurse. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. So, um, sorry, we got sidetracked with the Illinois <laughs> question. So, did you grow up like... Um, like hunt, like doing like stand hunting for like whitetail, that, that whole thing? I did not. My grandfather had a farm down in Southern Illinois mm-hmm. and uh, about an hour and a half from Peoria. And at that time, there were very few deer. In fact, it, if you mm. saw a deer, it was a big enough deal that you would call your neighbors and say, hey, there's a deer out here, get a picture of it. Oh, wow. Um, so That's from, almost like like what you do for like a moose or something. I know, I know. That's and so wild. for for those of us that were into hunting at that time, I hunted upland game mm-hmm. and small game, so pheasant and quail and rabbit, of course. Um, we didn't think it was it was really ethical at the time to be hunting deer because we were hoping the populations were going to come back. Mm-hmm. Well, now the deer population is off the charts there. Yeah, they um, say, don't they say like whitetails in America, it's at a level that was like higher than when the settlers first came or something like oh, that. I wouldn't doubt it. Or like I, I highest know, ever. But I, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, it's, yeah. I know some places where you can get three tags a day Whoa. and that's crazy. Yeah. Um, so that was for me, that was like the wild west going down to my grandfather's farm yeah. being a suburban boy, mm-hmm. you know, going down to the farm. That was, that was pretty cool. And so mm-hmm. we could go out. I think it was when I was eight years old, I was allowed to go out alone and shoot my 22 rifle, mm-hmm. go out into the woods. People are probably freaking out right now. They let an eight-year-old out. And then at 12 years old, I could go out with a, a shotgun. Yeah, wow. And uh, just a different time, a different world, and um, you know, was taught all of the safety aspects of that. And it was never, you know, there was never a second thought as to, is this normal? Mm-hmm. Well, where I grew up and in, in this particular community, it was normal. Mm-hmm. In the rural community, we would drive, you know, grain to the um, uh, the granary or grain bins or whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. At you know, thirteen and fourteen year old, would be driving driving the train, and and we're like, hey, this is normal. And I'm like, Grandpa, I'm gonna get arrested by the cops. And he's like, Oh no, everybody does it. Yeah. So I'm driving down the road in this big grain truck. <laughs> oh yeah. At fourteen. Yeah. So that's wild. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, and then, so is that kind of where, or did you kind of get your, I guess, like your love of shooting and safety and all that stuff, like from your dad and grandpa? And then you just kind of, it was like just a part of the lifestyle, like you said? So the actual event that, that kind of hooked me into shooting in long range was uh, a cousin of my dad's, a second cousin. He came back from the military and we met him at his farmhouse which was near my grandfather's and he had a rifle i think a 30 out 6 and said hey we're going to shoot a dime from 100 yards well and i think i was 12 years old at the time and so he paced it off 100 yards put a dime in a crack on a log and he shot it and we went down and the the dime was gone and i mean i was literally hooked from that point on oh wow um and That's then a- the, and then the next thing he did was he handed my father a 44 magnum and said hey I'd like you to shoot this. And it was right at dusk. So when he touched off the trigger, there was just this huge ball of fire. And, yeah. you know, it was kind of like that imprint on my brain of, wow, that's really cool. I don't know what it was that excited me so much about it. But from that point on, I started picking up hunting magazines and gun magazines and doing some research. Yeah. And uh, my brother and I both bought single shot pistols at the time and uh, we're way into shooting down on the farm. You know, we go down maybe once a month. Yeah, awesome. Um, anyway. You did that same thing at our our lesson when it went up to dusk, and you did the same thing. We shot that like right when it was starting to get dark, and we yeah. like, saw the same thing. Yeah, that is so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely a, a memory. Yeah, 
Awesome. And um, so then when did you, did you start to like visit places out West? Or like, when did you start to come out here and get hooked into being in the mountains? So my first time was between my eighth grade and freshman year of high school. Um, and I came out to the camp, which I now direct. Uh, and we spent a week here doing hiking and whitewater rafting and backpacking mm-hmm. um, and Bible studies that, you know, the whole idea was to get students out of the inner city mm. and, and get them into an environment where they can uh, kind of open up. And uh, so anyway, um, came out for a week and did that, fell in love with it, had this dream that someday I would like to come out and hunt, mm-hmm. you know, go out west for a week and maybe hunt elk. Um, and now, you know, on an average Friday morning during hunting season, I'll have a friend call up and say, hey, Scott, you want to go elk hunting in the morning? And I'm like, now i got to change the oil in my truck. <laughs> so priorities have definitely changed since then. Yeah. Um, still love to hunt, but it's not, you know, the main goal. Um, so I came out that first summer, uh, second summer, which was between my freshman year, sophomore year. Um, I came out for one week, helped build the rec room there. Uh, and my sister who was working on staff said, Hey, you want to come out for the month of August? Cause we have a lot of groups coming out in August and we need some help. And I'm like, of course. So I came out, um, that August, uh, and that's when I started getting interested in this, this other girl. <laughs> and, uh, so the rest is kind of history. We ended up dating for seven years, uh, ended up getting married and, and I think it was 89, but, um, you know, ran the camp program through the summer, and we had lots of backpack groups, um, typically church groups or parachurch organizations that would come out. Mm-hmm. Um, College-age Christian groups like Campus Crusade for Christ would come out, and we would take them in the backcountry. And, uh, of course, the goal was to be able to, to share Christ with them as a Christian. That was that was our, our hope and our desire. Um, and we'd have a great time doing it. Yeah. Yeah, you said in the beginning that you would— you would go look at like geological stuff within the frame of like a creationist point of yeah, view. And, yeah. and what does, what does that mean? So um, from a biblical worldview, we have those that would take the book of Genesis literally as I would. And then there would be some of those folks out there that would say that that's an allegory. Mm-hmm. So I do believe that there was an Adam and it, Adam and Eve. I do mm-hmm. believe that there was a global flood. And if there was a global flood, as the scriptures share, then we should find evidence of that all over the world, which mm-hmm. we do. Mm-hmm. Um, anything from, you know, shells all the way to the toppest or the top highest mountain in the world, we'll find shells at that level mm-hmm. um, to the lowest point. Um, give you an example, um, the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon has uh, nautiloids in it, which are ancient, what we call ancient sea creatures, mm. a long cylindrical type of a shell, kind of a squid-like creature. And that, uh, we were taught for years and years and years that the Grand Canyon was formed over eons of time, millions and millions of years. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with that is, is when you look at the nautiloids that are deposited in the Grand Canyon, they're all oriented, pointed upstream, over 90% of them. Whoa. So wherever they've been deposited, they've been deposited facing upstream. It doesn't matter whether they're pointed north, south, east, or west. Whichever way the river is flowing, wow. they're pointed upriver. So that tells us that, okay, they were deposited rapidly because we know when creatures that are in, in, a, in a flood-like environment, um, when they're getting flooded, they tend to swim upstream. 
You know, whatever's mm -hmm. going on down there can't be good. I got to go back upstream. And so they were, you know, rapid deposition of those creatures. So now um, probably 60% of, of what we would call uniformitarian scientists would say, okay, yeah, it was, it was obviously created rapidly. Um, now, how do you explain that? Well, it could be a breach uh, in, in a glacial uh, uh, dam mm -hmm. um, at the end of the ice age, uh, something along those lines. So, um, but we're finding evidence all over the world of, of rapid deposition. So what we thought took eons of time doesn't really take eons of time. In fact, up in Montana, there was a T-Rex that they were lifting out with a helicopter and the knee joint came apart and they found elastic blood cells. What? So as creationists, we're going, okay, that tells us, you know, this world hasn't been around as long as everybody has said it has been around. Uh -huh. Um, and so we're excited to hear what the head researcher had to say about this. And her comment was, well, now we have to rethink our whole new paradigm with regard to how long blood cells stay elastic rather than think about the whole new paradigm of, wait a second, maybe dinosaurs were around a lot later than we think. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, in I've recent heard... time, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the, the break in a glacier thing because i've have you heard of uh graham hancock ever i have yep he I yeah have. he writes these books on like he has theories about stuff that happened to the earth yep. um uh yep. I, not not in like a religious he no, he'll like a religious add some alien stuff in there and alien not. stuff yeah so he he's would be well i might be considered edgy for your audience <laughs> in this regard no um but graham hancock would probably be considered edgy on our end as well i mean when you start yeah. adding the alien element he um, i mean he's edgy for a lot of people yeah. just because of like how far out he goes yeah. and then it's crazy how he's made these a couple claims throughout the years and then like 15 years later uh like regular scientists or like um mainstream scientists confirm it right right L right like um but um he was on uh, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast. He's he's been on there a bunch, but with a guy that he traveled around with. He traveled around like the Dakotas, Montana, a little bit of Wyoming and like Idaho. Right. Because they're they're working on a theory that there was a big glacier break like around this area and all the water like very rapidly in like a mile high wall of water swept down through like uh Arizona and like down to Gulf Mexico yeah. or down to the Pacific Ocean and they were tracking like all these different like fluid like patterns of like major amounts of water oh, on yeah. the earth in Absolutely. this grand scale yeah it was so incredible and they show the pictures yeah. of like like sand if it's been like in a riverbed yeah. and then like this huge field looks exactly the same with the exact same shaped waves uh, oh, yeah. the same spacing but it's on a grander scale oh yeah oh, and yeah. i'm like holy shit i think they're, they're probably onto something here oh yeah so you find that i mean you find that all over montana all the way out to washington mm -hmm. um you, you have what are called hummocks uh which are which are these um kind of berms that were laid down by water mm -hmm. um in fact mount saint helens gave us a really good picture of what a lot of this looked like from a global perspective or a global flood perspective, mm -hmm. because Spirit Lake, you know, was formed during that whole that that whole uh, um, volcanic 
issue there. And what happened was is the lake dammed up and then breached, and they ended up with that huge flood. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting, where all of that deposit flowed down and where the deposit from the volcano built up, those sedimentary layers, if you were to just look at that without knowing what just happened in what was that, 80 or 81 with, with the volcano going off at Mount St. Helens, you'd say, wow, that's like eons of years old. In fact, they would radiometric date that, and it would come back to 1.5 million years old. But mm-hmm. they know the day that that was created. Yeah, The hummocks that were created there because of the flow of water um, we're seeing all over the world. Uh, for example, our quartzite, our river rocks here, there is a small percentage of them that have percussion marks on them. And we know they originate, originated out of Montana. Mm-hmm. I and mean, they can track the flow of you know different types of rocks and where they came from. Percussion marks um, aren't aren't created unless that rock hit another rock at 70 miles per hour. Well, that doesn't happen just babbling down a little brook. Yeah. But it does or happen. Or even in the snake. Or not even in the snake. I yeah. mean, not 70 miles fr- per hour for sure. Yeah. So there's all kinds of these what most people would say are anomalies. We would say they are evidence mm-hmm. that if there was a global flood, yeah, we're going to see all of this stuff. And that's what we find. Yeah. Um, so I would certainly agree with Hancock on that. You know, he might think of it more as a localized flooding. We would see it as, okay, the Bible was true. This is what God said, mm-hmm. that there was a flood that covered every mountain over the very top. And we find evidence of that everywhere. Yeah, it's kind of interesting now that we talked through that. That um, So I think I think he comes from a, he, I think he might be like a, I think you might say he's an atheist. You right. might come from that perspective. Right. And he so he comes from that perspective and you're coming from a religious perspective and you're coming to a very similar point and it, and it can agree on it. It's interesting to me. Well, the evidence is the same. It. We're yeah. all looking at the same evidence is how you interpret that evidence. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. When we went into the Grand Canyon, we're hiking down to a layer that there were not supposed to be vertebrates in that layer at all. Mm-hmm. So they don't find um, you know, they don't find any any type of um, skeletal remains of anything in there, any bones or anything. But we find these split hoof prints that are tracked all across there. And it looks just like when I go hunting and I'm looking at deer prints or I'm looking at elk prints. And there's a guy that hikes down and he's he's watching me take pictures. And he says, what are you doing? And I says, well, I'm taking pictures of this. And I said, by the way, what is this? And he says, well, those are imprints of, you know, a split hoofed animal. And I said, what if I told you that according to uniformitarian geology, this isn't supposed to be in this layer? And he says, well, then that's not what it is. <laughs> it's like, well, wait a second. We're both looking at the same evidence. Yeah. If, if you have a little bit of common sense, you can say, well, yeah, that's obviously tracks that are, that mm-hmm. are imprinted and, you know, have been fossilized over. Um, but, you know, it, it all depends on what paradigm you're coming from, what you believe in terms mm-hmm. of, okay, I'm looking at this evidence. It fits the paradigm that I believe. It makes the most sense to me. Um, yeah. So there's evidences like that all over. Yeah. What other, are there, what other sites around um, Wyoming do you visit as examples of stuff like that? Um, Kemmerer, for sure. So you, you've got, uh, I can't remember the name of, of um, the museum there, but there's all kinds of um, fossils that are in that museum. And they would say that that area was a lake bed where the bottom of the lake was uh, a much higher content, much higher saline content. Mm -hmm. And so when sea creatures would die, 
they would, you know, drop to the bottom. And because it was a saline content, no other sea creatures would eat on those. Mm. And that's how over eons of time you have, you know, the deposition of the silt and the sand and whatnot over those. And those became fossilized. Mm. Um, the problem is, is that doesn't explain the rest of the world where fossils are always created quickly. Um, I mean, otherwise they decay over time. Mm -hmm. We're just not seeing it happening today. So mm -hmm. why don't we see it happen today? Well, could be that there was a global flood that ended up burying these things over a short period of time. Yeah. Um, I mean, just an example in Australia, there is a tree that goes through multiple layers over millions of years of layers, but it's oh. a single tree that goes through all of those layers vertically. And so I, I have not heard of this. Oh, we yeah. need to look this oh, up. Yeah. We're going to look this up. So this is Australia. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Get in here. That is so crazy. With some pictures from the weekend. <laughs> nice. I do. Um, I don't know if I told you I do the uh, marketing for Jackson Hole Steelworks. Okay. So we were out. We out. We went out to. Uh, out into Phillips Canyon and built like a little snow bar and then put my snowboard on top of it and like made some cocktails and like took some photos and took some videos of it and we'll, I'll post it out <laughs> here in the, in the future. So what's this thing called? Um, if you typed in, let me think here, tree going through coal layers in Australia or fossilized tree or petrified tree going through coal layers in Australia. Okay, let's see here. Is this it? Um, do an image search. See if we can find it that way. And this might... Yeah, no, it's going to be coal layers. It's going down. I am not seeing it there. Try a different search. Tree. Let's see. We don't want too much dead air. So tree going through. Um, through layers of rock. Or you could do years of layers Australia. of rock, something along those lines. It's coming back at this one. Again, polish straight. I'm going to have to look at, try this one just for fun. That may be it because I'm looking at creation.com. Yeah. And let's see what that says. Tree going through layers of rock, Australia. And you'll see a few pictures in here if you guys are searching out there. Um, it just looks like kind of like a, that's just a tree that's just looking as uh, fossilized tree that's just going through the ground it doesn't look anything weird until you realize that all that sediment under conventional knowledge would have been formed over like millions of years right is that the idea here right does it say australia or anything in here um, joggins fossil cliffs oh no that's nova scotia yeah where is this one at joggins no that is nova scotia I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah. But yeah. Dude, that's insane. So so do what do 
with the one that you're talking about and probably this one too what does conventional what do, what are the does the conventional scientists say to explain that away um they don't it's an anomaly, an to, anomaly. to give you an example up mm -hmm. in yellowstone for example at fossil butte there are trees um they have a petrified forest uh at fossil butte and there is no root structure that's fossilized mm -hmm. okay if if there was silt buried up around those trees over eons of time you should be able to find the the root structure of those but you don't mm -hmm. so we believe those were torn out and redeposited in a from a flood type of situation mm, yeah. which is exactly what we found uh, at mount st helens mm -hmm. with spirit lake so you had this log mat the logs would become waterlogged they would orient root ball down because that's the heaviest portion of the tree mm -hmm. and they would deposit themselves among the silt and as it's as it's building up around it you can have fossilization occurring because you have so much silica in that soil mm -hmm. um, because of the volcanic activity so so they actually had to change the sign up up at i'm sorry not fossil butte specimen ridge up in Yellowstone, because they used to say that these were trees that grew up through different environmental conditions. So you'd have um, rainforest type trees and mountain type trees over eons of time. And they decided, no, that can't be true because there is no root structure to them. They were deposited rapidly. Mm -hmm. And how long do we think? Um, Back that way. I just searched Specimen Ridge Yellowstone for those at home. Yep. Um, how long do you think like this whole settling period took from like when the flood like washed out to like when all like when all of it when all the water kind of like I don't know left or dried dissipated? up or yeah dissipated? How long do you think that took? I probably wouldn't be the expert to tell you, mm -hmm. but if I'm going to give you an an age of the earth according to biblical view that would be probably six to seven thousand years total yeah and that's from not the, that long from no from the, the beginning of creation till now yeah what does this totally change the subject what uh, what's the creationist view point of view on uh the devil's tower what do we think about that um I do not know that. Okay. Yeah, I do not know that. I need to get out there. I, I've seen That's, it from afar, but not. I've not been up close to it I yet. I mean, we could have some of the scientists that come and teach at the college, and you'd be more than welcome to sit in on that. And yeah. Give you, a, you know, uh, an illustration of that. What what the theory is on that. Mm -hmm. um, but that's definitely volcanic. That's basalt, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I guess what they say. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Have you seen? Um, there's a, uh, I'm not even sure if it's a legitimate theory right now or kind of like just a fun internet theory, but uh, they're saying that um, f it's hard for feathers and a lot of soft tissue to be fossilized. So that's why our, our idea of dinosaurs are this like really tight, thin skinned, scaly creatures. And we don't, we're not actually sure, we wouldn't be able to tell unless we found a better fossil or something, if they would ha be like covered in feathers or covered in like fur or like really fat compared to like their skeletal structure. Have you heard this at all? I, I have heard that and I don't have a bone to pick in this one. <laughs> yeah, that's just a fun thing to talk about. Yeah, they, they show yeah. like the picture of like a T-Rex, but with like all 
fur right. or like all or like really chubby. <laughs> right, but you'd still get imprints around many of those fossils, which we do of you know other very small intricate pieces um, that have been fossilized. So the fact that we're not finding any of that would make me think, hmm. Yeah, something like this one. So I just Googled T-Rex with feathers, and there's a picture. It's like yeah. white feathers over a T-Rex body. Yeah. Does that does that make it more terrifying or less terrifying? Well, it looks less terrifying to me. <laughs> I think I think more because you still. I mean, if we still, if our depiction of what they can do is any sort of accuracy, but then they're also covered like that. Right. It's like a like a demon chicken or yeah. something is what we're looking at right now. Well, if you didn't know the true scale and how big those really are, you know, it just looks like a small something. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't look big and scary. It looks yeah. like it's big and scary. Yeah. Um, cool. So let's, uh, let's, uh, let's go back to, uh, you, did, you, did you already say how long you've been here in Jackson? Been here, I mean, uh, 33 years now. 33 years. Yeah. And, uh, did you, so the, the 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 thing that a lot of people go through in their first few years is they're bouncing around houses all the time because like the rental market's nuts. Right. Did you have that going on even back then? No, and that's something that really didn't start until the, the early 90s mm. when everything kind of took off. So yeah. I got here, I mean, I worked summers 81 to 85, 86, came on uh, full-time here. And because of the nature of, of where I was working, I really didn't have to worry about the rental issue. It, it was just mm. not on my radar screen. Oh, yeah. um, however, the, the whole idea of having multiple jobs in Jackson Hole, you know, getting started out here, that, you know, continue f continues to follow me to this day. <laughs> and you get to know people over time, and, and therefore I have a couple of homes that I help maintain and move snow for, and, and it kind of fills in the gaps. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, the shooting experience, that was something I started uh, with – with uh, Shep and Lynn at Jacksonville Shooting Experience in nine, well, what was it, uh, 2013, 12, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I uh, have absolutely loved it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not just a fill in the gaps. It's truly a, a group of folks that were a team and friendship, and we all work together, and we all eat, sleep, breathe, you know, shooting and, and training and those kind of things. Yeah. Um, but that's been probably one of my favorite side jobs besides, uh, of course, working at the college and the camp. Mm -hmm. um, just been a blast. Yeah. There's that saying that goes like, in if you live in Jackson, you either have three houses or three jobs yeah, or something. Exactly. And it's so funny when it happens, when I see it happening with like people like yourself that have a real, a real full-time job. I myself have a real full-time job and a part-time job. Yeah. And like yeah. I do this podcast, I make a little bit of money, money off of it. Yeah. And like, you know, people I know that are successful real estate agents, they also have their side hustles. Sure. Like it's not just like that your bartenders and your ski, your lifties right. that have side right. jobs. Everybody right. has a side gig here. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And it's so funny. Yeah, and there's there's so much about this community that is, uh, you know, generated by tourism. So everything kind of revolves around that here. So even with the shooting industry, you know, we have a, a portion of our folks that are here because they're afraid of what's going on in the land right now. And they want, you know, experience handling guns such as yourself early on, at least the, with the exception that yours was for bear awareness in the backcountry, but mm -hmm. then we also have that segment of society that, hey, this is something entertaining that I don't get to do in the city. 
Yeah. And, you know, who gets to come out and shoot over a mile? <laughs> you know, you're not going to do that in New York. You're not going to do that in California. Yeah. Um, so you've got all kinds of options in Jackson Hole that we don't have elsewhere. Definitely. Yeah, there was a lot of people that, um, like, kind of right when our when everything shut down for COVID, I was hearing there was a lot of these, like, prepper mentalities coming coming oh, yeah. coming to the oh, surf- yeah. surface. Huge. And I bet you saw a lot of them, like, Tons. getting geared up for, yeah. like, and a I, war. And I would not say so much those that came to us as much as, you know, every now and then you just talk to somebody at the gun range that, you know, they kind of go down this vein of well i'm saving ammo and this that and the other and Mm -hmm. it's like well okay great (laughs) yeah i'm not there i'm not a prepper that's that's kind of not my background yeah um yeah and i i was we we were we were moving houses we used to live on saddle butte yeah um and we were kind of looking at some places around i was talking to one of the owners and he was like yeah this is really hot spot right now because it was like way down by um uh what is it red top or something right down south of wilson right and he was like, a lot of people are trying to rent this from me so they could have like a a bug out cabin because it was like a bug <laughs> cabin like way out there. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell? Like I'm yeah, just looking. Yeah. I'm just looking as like a cool place to live out in the in, in nature. Yeah. Well, and I mean, even if if even if you look at war torn countries where they're trying to bug out or get out of the city mm-hmm. or whatever, um, you you won't survive alone. I mean, you're not mm-hmm. going to do this alone. There's there's no Rambo's in the real world. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You you'd have to be with some type of a group uh, for protection like that. So the whole concept to me just kind of baffles me. Yeah. That somebody's really going to hide away from all of humanity and and live by themselves. I mean, we need community if if COVID has taught us anything through mm-hmm. all of this. We realize we need community. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I got, I got a little bit into a prepper headspace for like two days. Yeah. Like I went where I went down to the grocery store and I was like, all right, non-perishables. Yeah, jars of shit, yeah. uh, cans, <laughs> soup, noodles. I was like, I'm not toilet paper. Like if this, yeah. if this really gets crazy, I was picturing like a zombie apocalypse or yeah. something like yeah. that. If this <laughs> happens, like I'm not gonna starve. Or, or something like that. I might get eaten by zombies, but I'm not going to starve. I, I think we all go through those ebbs and flows, and we can have moments of prepperism. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. I know, you know, I don't know how old you were in Y2K, but when Y2K hit, you know, we stored some rice and beans away. <laughs> I was like thinking, seven, so I had no Yeah, clue. <laughs> so thinking, you know, we're not going to have electricity and computers aren't going to work, phones aren't going to work, and all those kind of things. Yeah. But, you know, coming from Illinois, every time there was a threat of any kind of a storm, for whatever reason, people would just go buy out all the milk and eggs. Even yeah. though they don't eat them normally, yeah. hey, you know, we're going to survive on milk and eggs. I know, yeah, like I don't eat that much soup out of a can normally, but I was yeah. like, this is going to see me through. Exactly. And that was the weirdest yeah. thing with the toilet paper stuff, like the shortages. It was like, this is not, so it's not a disease that like has like, you know, uh, gastrointestinal issues right. really. Right. It's not, not like it's staple. Um, and then it, the first wave of people buying a bunch of it caused the fear of there not being any of yeah. it. So then it just snowballed into this yeah. effect of like yep. people fighting over it. Yep. It was so weird how it yeah. happened. Like our societal like norms and like behavioral norms just totally broke down with the first sign of a toilet paper shortage. Yeah. You know, like people are fighting over toilet paper rolls in the store. Like what are we doing? Yeah. Well, we're seeing the same thing with ammunition. Yeah. You know, ammunition prices have gone through the roof and Mm -hmm. you won't find ammunition on the shelves right now. And I think much of it is generated very similarly to what you just explained. 
you know, there's a fear that we won't have it in the future. So everybody just keeps buying what they can Mm -hmm. when they see it. And you're just not going to see it, you know. As soon as it does hit the shelves, it's gone within literally minutes. Yeah, especially with, um, I think it was like this week, President Biden said, I saw a quote from him about uh, even further something further on firearm restrictions. And I bet yeah. that made like oh, people yeah. freak oh, out. Yeah. That's going to continue to perpetuate the problem. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Are there any, are there any like gunner ammo companies that are publicly traded? I don't know. Cause like probably a hot stock right now. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about like, this the kind of the backcountry safety stuff, the bear safe bear safety stuff that that you and I were talking about during my lesson. Sure. Um, and I'd like to start with, I totally uh, messed up the quote, the thing that you told me about the difference between black bears and grizzly bears. In like that, one of them is like like black black bears are kind of cowards, but they will eat you, yes. right? Yes. And then grizzlies are pretty ba- uh, brave, but they will not eat you. Right. So uh, black bears are predacious towards humans. Yeah. They, they actually like the taste of people. Mm-hmm. Um, how did we How did we learn that? Um, experience in maulings. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean. I mean, they're a scavenger. Some some scientist like saw a mauling was like, hmm. He looks like he's enjoying yeah. <laughs> himself there. I. You know. I think just the the study of maulings. There's like there's a guy out of Canada. Um, that researches all of these maulings and he puts mm-hmm. all the pieces together and look at pieces together and looks at the commonalities and then and then they come up with um, you know different different things that define okay here's what a grizzly does here's what a uh, black bear does experientially evidentially and um, we know that black bears are predatory towards humans so that's the one of the biggest reasons we say you don't want to play dead with a black bear because mm-hmm. once they start, you know, chewing on you, that they're going to be like, "Oh, I'm going to continue this." Mm-hmm. Um, grizzly bears, more often, um, you're certainly not going to fight them. They're far more powerful than we are, and they will put up a fight for whatever they're trying to defend. Maybe it's a food cache, like a half-buried moose. Maybe mm-hmm. um, it's their young. But if you're going to fight them, you're you're not going to win. You mm-hmm. you just aren't. And I think I told you I had a, a dear friend of mine um, was killed here just, what was it, three years ago, two and a half, three years ago now mm-hmm. um, from a grizzly. But uh, so that's the importance of knowing the difference between a black bear and a grizzly bear in terms of how you respond to them. So mm-hmm. a black bear, you're always, always, always going to fight a black bear. Um, it, it generally, again, historically, experientially, doesn't take a lot for a black bear to say, you know, I really don't want to put up a fight for my food. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a grizzly bear playing dead is is your best bet. Once you are attacked, if you don't have pepper spray, if you don't have a firearm, mm-hmm. uh, your best bet is just to go down in that fetal position, cover your neck, um, and try to protect, you know, protect your spine, uh, mm-hmm. keep your backpack on, those kind of things. Yeah. Have you seen uh, The Revenant? No. The movie? Uh, Okay, I I would like you, if if I can give any homework out from the <laughs> podcast, I would I'd be really interested to see what you think of the the bear mauling scene because it's okay. do you know what the the concept of the movie? No, I don't. So yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio plays this old like uh, guy from like the beaver fur trapping era. Sure. Uh, I think they say it takes place kind of in Wyoming Montana area. 
Right. Um, is this based on a true story? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and we can look up who it is, but so this this guy, the story of this guy is that he got mauled by a grizzly bear, and when he was like alone, like his group had like left him for whatever reason, and they frame it like something happened, and it's all this drama, dram, dramatic stuff for the for the movie, but he got mauled by a grizzly bear and like was alone in the wilderness and got back to the fort he was trying to get to somehow. Right. And he tells the story a certain way. Um, I think Hugh Glass is the guy's name. Okay. Sounds like, I want to say Jim Bridger, but I could be wrong. No, not Jim Bridger. I know, I would know Jim Bridger. Okay. Revenant. So yeah, Bridger the dog is named after Jim Bridger. Jim Bridger's a badass. Yeah. What is the... We have cast. Yeah. So he plays Hugh Glass and it's like out there and he. Um, Who's the trapper he's supposed to represent? Hugh, Gla- Hugh Glass is the actual guy's oh, name. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So yeah. he So he gets mauled by the bear, gets like big, you know, slash across like his chest and his throat and it's like opened up. And I don't know if they took this from this guy's journal or whatever, but they showed that uh, the, that he close the wound by putting like gunpowder on it and lighting it right and then it like cauterizing you know, cauteri- cauter- yeah. yeah did that um and then yeah they show him like floating down a river to get closer to his place and it's like the middle of winter so like right. how he didn't freeze to death is beyond yeah. anybody yeah. and he like was fighting with like he like a uh, a pack of wolves like killed something that he was by and they like let him eat a little bit of it just to have right. some sustenance and like there's natives around and they were like trying to kill him and the, at one point in the movie and then in real life i think he did something like this but he he had to he like he ran his horse off a cliff and then the horse died and then he he cut it open and slept in its belly yeah. or slept it inside of its rib cage overnight so he didn't freeze right right and then this is all this just this crazy stuff happens over and over again until he eventually gets back to the fort and then tries to kill the dude who like killed his son or something right, like that. Right. But I would love to see what you think about the bear scene. Okay. Cause they say, I've heard people say that it's like pretty accurate. Okay. I'll, for like I'll, the mauling. Yeah. I mean, I've not, again, I've not seen a mauling myself. I've, I've heard, you know, read, uh, you know, the forensics analysis of some of these maulings. Mm-hmm. Oh, we can look it not, up right now. Which is not pretty. Yeah. So we're watching a Revenant bear scene on YouTube, everyone. But this is finally what Leo, uh, what got Leo his, um, his Oscar. Okay. He had to sleep. And I think for Leo's training for the part, he actually slept in a horse's carcass just to like get into character. Wow. He did some crazy stuff. Yeah, these guys, all these guys, the Jim Bridgers, the Hugh Glasses, like they are, they were so crazy, way more tough than, different, than both yeah, of us. Yeah, different breed for sure. Yeah. Much different breed. And I think about like the settlers that, that came to this valley and how they did it. Like they're wearing furs and leathers and moccasins and right. they're just riding a horse. And it's the same winter mostly, maybe like a touch warmer. Yeah. But like... The same winter, the same amount of snow, but no roads, 
right. no buildings. They were in like tents or teepees if they're a native. Right. And they're living in the same winter that like we barely get through in our modern houses. Yeah. We would, uh, we'd be in sorry shape if we were thrown into that environment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here they come. The bears are rolling up. And there's multiple bears. Yeah, I think it was a. They show that there's like a baby involved or something. Like right now, I think he's in between the mom and the baby. And this is supposed to take place in Wyoming. I think they say Montana or Wyoming. They shoot. They shot it somewhere else. But ooh, yeah. So he's, the bears got Leo by the leg now. Hugh Glass really needed some sort of like bear safety uh, instructor back then. He, yeah, he's he saw not the, playing dead. He saw, yeah, and he saw the babies and didn't look for mom. Was just about to trying to shoot the babies, you know. Right. If I, I've seen a a younger grizzly in the wild once, and I was like, okay, we gotta f get the heck out of here and yeah. keep our eyes open for mom. Yep. So this scene where the where the bear is breathing over his face, I've read incidences of that. The only thing that's, that's kind of different with this than mm -hmm. what I've read about, mm -hmm. um, you know, is most people are saying, you know, they didn't feel pain as it was happening. Oh, wow. Because there's just an adrenaline dump. Yeah. Um, it's so crazy that our body, like, protects us from that. Yeah, kind of the fight or flight. Yeah. It, like, shuts system. everything down. It's like, you got to... No, I, th I think that broke his back. I think they say that, too. Yeah, pretty realistic. And uh, so you've got the bear off, what, 15 yards or so. And I know one thing that we teach is, you know, you need to stay immovable as long as you can because it's not uncommon for the bears to hang out in that area for up to a half an hour. Oh, really? And... Uh, yeah, I mean, all of that being said, I think I told you about the charge that I had. I did everything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, you teach it for years and then you end up, I had a daughter uh, that I'd just taken out of a backpack and uh, we looked up the trail and there was a big black bear lumbering our way. And so I gave the, my daughter to my wife and said, you know, you take Heidi and Jessica down the trail I'll make sure the bear doesn't come through here. And the bear charged, and I think I ended up just yelling at the bear, walking towards it, getting super angry. And I think it's that paternal instinct, instinct mm -hmm. of, okay, I want to protect my daughter. Yeah. Uh, but I did everything wrong from what I train. <laughs> yeah. It was that whole thing you were telling me about, like, uh, what do you call, like, the you had something you said about the types of movements and types of actions that we try to do with with um pep with the bear spray and with our firearms like macro movements versus micro movements so that when you're in the moment it's not these fidgety little okay. things that you're trying to do so yeah that's fine motor skills versus gross motor skills that so yeah, when yeah. we're talking about firearms and training um in defensive training or training for bear awareness uh we train you to use um gross motor skills because yeah. under stress we end up losing our fine motor skills the ability to dial 911 for example the ability to cock the hammer of of a revolver that's a single action yeah for example 
Now you can turn fine motor skills into gross motor skills with repetition. They say it takes three to 5,000 repetitions to turn a fine motor skill into a gross motor skill. Mm -hmm. But the reason we do these things is so that when everything hits the fan, you have the ability to act uh, in a way that's going to work. Yeah. Um, we end up with what we call tunnel vision. We end up with auditory exclusion. Um, you may end up getting sick to your stomach. You may end up losing your faculties. All these things happen, whether it's in a war scenario or whether it's in, you know, being a, a mauling situation. Mm -hmm. Our body does all of these things to kind of shunt excess whatever. You don't need these other things. Yeah. Um, and then the blood ends up going to the core. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just to the to the extent of you had all this knowledge, you knew you know, on paper what you should be doing, but in the moment of adrenaline and focus and all that, that got thrown out the window and all yep. of your, uh, all of your knowledge was just like, oh, wasn't yeah. even there anymore. And you're yeah. like, I just got to protect my daughter and be between her and the bears. Yes. yes. Yep. And I, you know, I don't know that I would do it any different. I'm, I'm going to lay down my life for my daughter. Certainly. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to think that if I would have gotten attacked, I would have uh, you know, continued to fight knowing that it was a black bear. Mm -hmm. um, that black bear, by the way, charged two other hikers in the next two days. And then they ended up destroying it because they said, you know, it's kind of a three strikes you're out. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that the park ranger had asked me after my incident was, did you have an opportunity to pepper spray it? And this, I said, I didn't because I didn't feel it was you know, I was, I know how far pepper spray sprays. You got to see that yeah. in the demo. It's not as far as everybody thinks. No. And uh, so I didn't spray and he says, oh, I'm kind of bummed about that because you might've been able to save that bear's life mm -hmm. because they ended up having to destroy it. So, you know, if there's a bear acting aggressively towards you, um, you certainly want to get some pepper spray out there in, in one second bursts for two reasons. Number one, to get it away from you. But number two, it educates that bear into thinking, okay, humans hurt. Yeah. I don't want to be around them again. And you may end up sparing that bear's life down the future. Or more importantly, in my opinion, sparing Spring the humans. life of, yeah, somebody who may, you know, end up being confronted by this bear. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've gone a little bit too far without saying the fact that, so I went in to talk about, uh, I met with you to, to work on gun safety in the case of bears. But what we, what a lot of people say, and we know as common knowledge, is that bear spray is a much better deterrent of bears than a handgun. Uh, a handgun, yes. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, handgun, just to put it into perspective power-wise, mm -hmm. a handgun, one of the most powerful handguns that we have in the world are only equal to your average hunting rifle that's mm -hmm. going to hunt deer or elk. Mm -hmm. So when people think they're going to save their lives with a handgun, I mean, it's a, it's a poor tool, um, you know, to stop a bear. Not to mention you add the stress, the adrenaline dump, you mm -hmm. know, the tunnel vision, all those other things that we mentioned. Are you going to be able to, uh, you know, put those rounds where they need to be on a moving target, not a static target that you practiced on mm -hmm. out at the range, mm -hmm. you know, that's not moving, but on a, on a target that's moving 40 miles per hour. At you or your family or yeah. your dogs or whatever yeah. with on, on uneven, uneven ground. Absolutely. I Maybe mean, you're hiking, so you're like huffing and puffing. Yep. Right. And um, yeah, tell so, tell the thing you were explaining this thing about the bear's heartbeat and that their heartbeats are so far apart that even right. if you shot it in the kill spot, right, it would still have like another 
minute or two or something before well, uh, they would have up to I think it's 12 or 14 seconds to still do damage so let's say you take out the heart we're not talking a central nervous system shot you know the spine or the brain those are kind of a lights out that's going to stop their activity mm-hmm. at least if it's the brain it'll stop the activity if it's the spine everywhere below where you hit obviously is going to be dead um but um they have what's called a phlegmatic nervous system with that very slow heart rate they they can uh continue with with a heart being taken out the lungs being you know completely obliterated they still have up to 12 14 seconds to do damage yeah and, and so they can run like 100 yards in 5 seconds in dense forest yeah um so think about that you know 12 seconds is a whole lot of time to do mm-hmm. a whole lot of damage yeah and if we when you if you place it into like an effective range for your handgun or whatever gun in that forest or wherever you're at or the time it takes from them to see you charge you then you get your gun out then you shoot them then they have 14 seconds to still get to you yeah um was terrifying when you said it to me the first time um i mean i've watched antelope that were shot and would literally run 300 yards and when we finally got to that animal antelope the heart is completely gone Mm-hmm. And it's just an adre- adrenaline dump and whatever residual blood is left in the system. Yeah. Is that what other animals have that kind of nervous system? Uh, I don't know. That's is that... a good question. <laughs> I don't know. Well, let's look it up. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how What's it called fast. Again? Well, I've heard it described as a phlegmatic nervous system. Is it AG? AG? Uh, phlegmatic. Yeah, I think it's P H L E. Let's see how I good think. Google is. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Flag. Oh, yeah. Apparently, Pavlov had some work on it. Yeah. <laughs> Which animals have a... Which animals have a phlegmatic nervous system? Let's see, Google. Google, you're letting us down here. Come on, Google. And it's only because I'm trying to show you something that it's slow. If I was doing this on my own. Yeah. Um. I was going to say something else about... Oh, and the other thing about uh, bear spray that you, you told me that makes it very effective is because bears' noses are so strong, the the spicy smell of it, if you get it up near their nostrils and the, or in their eyes and they can't see, they're really not going to want to do anything because they don't know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, any, any creature with mucous membrane um, is going to end up being affected by pepper spray. It's, it's in essence, cayenne pepper ground up, um, mm. which happens to be be the most concentrated form of vitamin C there is. But uh, they will end up involuntarily closing their eyes mm. um, and trying to wipe this away from their face. And the advantage with the pepper sprays that we have now is they're oil-based, non-flammable oil-based. So when they get sprayed in the face, they end up... <laughs> Sorry about that. Drop the mic. Sorry about that, everyone with headphones. I, th- I saw that was coming out and I was yeah. like, ah, should I grab it? <laughs> So they, they wipe their face trying to get it off of their face and, and end up spreading it all over them. So in the nostrils, in the mouth, on the lips, you know, anywhere the, there's mucous membrane, they're going to be in pretty severe pain for about three hours. Mm-hmm. I'm not finding anything on this. We're, we're striking out with Google today. Try this the is slow like heart rate in, in uh, grizzlies, something along those lines.
Okay. 25 beats per minute. 25 beats per oh, minute. Oh, that's during... Okay, so that's during hibernation. hibernation. Uh, drops five beats. 5 and 25 during hibernation. Does it give us a normal heart rate? Oh, they're just going to the hibernating. Yeah. Grizzly... Let's talk about 399. Here we go. Did you see when she walked through Wilson? No, I saw the I saw the pictures. Yeah, luckily I was at, we were out of town, <laughs> but I was like, holy crap, because one of oh, the videos yeah. was like just right up the road. Yeah, right in front of Bar J, I think. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Do we why do we why do we think she ventured that far, her and her cubs? According to the paper the other day, it had to do with people that have been feeding feeding her and that was up towards solitude though so why she ended up this far south there's theory that i've heard of and that's because she has four young she's trying to keep them away from the boars that you know want to go after her young oh so she's just getting further and further south of the the dense population of grizzlies that's theory who knows oh yeah so so the people who out there out there listening who may not know grizzly 399 is a female grizzly bear that lives in Grand Teton National Park, and she's had like the most cubs of any recorded grizzly since Over we've been recording. Seventeen them. years, yeah. Yeah, and right now she has four cubs, which is unheard of for a grizzly. Usually, it's like one, maybe two. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, and so she's like she has she has like ten thousand Instagram followers. Like oh, somebody yeah. started like, an Instagram account for her. Yeah, absolutely. She's making more money than the rest of us. Yeah, okay. yeah, and. Um, she usually is up in Grand Teton National Park, and I've, I've seen her, like, just a little bit north of, like, the Moran Junction area, um, which was wild. We turned yeah. the corner, and there's, like, a hundred cars, and we're like, oh, what's going yeah. on? Maybe an animal. And it's her, and yeah. they're probably from, like, me to your truck, away from the road, and all the cubs, and they're just eating, sniffing around. Yep. And there's people, like, wrapped around them, and, like, n- with no nothing between her and them and the cubs and i'm like what is going on yeah this is stressing me out like we're not stopping you can look at it it's really cool what we're going on i don't i don't need to see anybody get mauled today yeah yeah but she's so she's been pretty docile towards humans i think there's two incidences mm-hmm. that she's had and i don't know the details on those but apparently they're not enough to say okay we need to relocate her but uh that in and of itself would be a political night you know nightmare because there's yeah. so many people that follow her it's, you know, one of the main attractions in the summer. Yeah, I'm sure it's like this money-making piece to yeah. Grand Teton National Park that they're like, we can't get rid of this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it sucks that the bears or the animals get get blamed for the stupidity of humans. Yeah, absolutely. When the, there's a lot of those interactions. I don't know anything about her interactions, but all these animal interactions around here in Yellowstone where it's for sure the human's fault yeah. and the animals get put down. Yeah, exactly. And that just sucks. Yeah, I'm I'm with you 100. percent Yeah, this yeah. is this has been a recurring topic on this podcast actually. Whenever I have like friends in town that I bring on, uh, and we go up into Yellowstone or Grand Teton and see like you know see a buffalo herd or something and how people act around them, they're always yeah. like, Tyler, I've heard you talk about this, but it's it's insane how close people try to get. Yeah, I was with a group coming out of Hidden Falls one time, and we were at the uh, North Jenny Lake Bridge, and there was this black bear that was hanging out behind this big willow bush and there's this lady with a group of kids that is trying to go around the willow bush to get a picture of this bear and i'm yeah. on the other side my boots are off you know I'm, i've got my feet in the water 
just cooling them off. And, I, and I'm, I'm like, man, you need to you need to move your kids away from that bear. You're way too close to that bear. And then the bear runs off because it heard me yelling this across the, the river there. Yeah. She comes over and reams me out. For oh, my scaring gosh. The bear off. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, I mean, this is not Disneyland. You know what yeah. I mean? These are wild animals. Yeah. They kill a lot of stuff all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be your kid today. And I, you know, I just love to get inside their head and go, what are they thinking? I mean, do they really think that because this is a park that yeah. everything's safe because of that? Kind of like Disney World? I don't know. I know. Yeah. I've, we've, t- we've, I've talked about this, you know, endless times. Like, they, there's so much signage and all the rangers do a great job. And everybody who talks about this does, says the right thing. We all, we're all saying, these are wild animals. You can't yeah. mess with them. Yeah. And then something happens where these people probably have heard that that day. Saw maybe if they went through a visitor center, they saw something that's saying, "Don't get close to the animals." Yeah. You know, here's the. They have that great map that shows how far away from which animals oh, you yeah. should be. Oh yeah. I think that's phenomenal. Yeah. And they probably saw that that day and still decided, "No, I need to get a picture of this." Yeah. Yeah. Or like I just had an interaction, um, on Thursday. We were in the village. We were walking up to Spur to get to go get a beer in there, and there was a mom moose and a baby moose in between the, those two hotels, the Teton, what is it, Teton Mountain Lodge and the and Continuum, really tight space. And uh, and at first everyone is like being cautious. They're like, "Hey, there's a moose over there, like with mom and baby, like be careful." So we gave it its space, and we can't come back out. And there's like, the baby is right up next to the walkway with a railing between the walkway and the the moose. And people are like going up, like like if the, if this is the moose's head, they're like they're like taking like selfies with the freaking moose. Yeah. And mom's over there, like luckily she was being chill about it. Yeah. Um, like people are like starting to surround him a little bit, getting pictures, like turning their backs to it. And I'm like, yeah. Tim, we gotta get out of here. Someone's gonna get freaking yeah. stomped. Yeah. And then one idiot goes to touch the baby, and then like uh, luckily enough, like locals were around and was like, dude, don't yeah. don't freaking do that. Yeah. Do not. And, he, and then that yeah. guy started to like cuss out some other people for yelling at him. Unbelievable. Like, what are we doing out here, people? Yeah. So the pepper spray is not for the bears. It's not for the moose. It's, it's for the idiots. It's, yes, it's for the idiots. <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to quote you on that? You can quote me on that. <laughs> oh, man. But it's just, there's so many times like that I this, you see it everywhere. And it's, I think it has something to do with the people that, the fact that they're on vacation, they don't. For some reason, their brain shuts off that that it's still real life, that it's still the yeah. world. Well, you know? and it, there's a lemming mentality when you see, you know, 40 people hovering around an animal. You're like, oh, well, I guess this is okay. Yeah, like what are the odds the bear picks me? Yeah, but it, but if you were there alone, you might think twice about that. But mm-hmm. You think there's safety in numbers to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, touring Yellowstone with groups, we've seen people charged by bison. Mm-hmm. And they are unbelievably fast. I mean, people yeah. do not give them credit. 40, yeah, did you... 42 miles per hour, if I'm not mistaken. There yeah. used to be a guy that traveled the country, and he would bet that his bison could outrun uh, a quarter ho- horse in the first 100 yards. Yeah. And he usually won. And it's basically like the size of a small car, too. So it's not yeah. like it's something small. Yeah. Where's There's a very specific video. I think it's this one. But it comes by and it just it just looks so enormous and oh, that's not it. Yeah, we keep striking out with these Google searches, man. I am not as good as I. 
as I need to be. Yeah, well, I was just going to pull it up for fun. Those things are so fast and so big and basically like a car. I like I bet if you see Taylor's car right out there, it's a it's a what is it? A Nissan SUV. Most bison probably are about that say a little bit smaller in mass, but basically that it's that hitting you at 40 miles per hour if you were to yeah. get hit by one. Yeah. 2000 pounds for a yeah. full full grown bison. How much does a car weigh? Uh 3500 a small car yeah okay so yeah but still it's gonna hurt <laughs> it has horns cars don't have horns yeah 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 they're gonna pummel you into the ground mm-hmm. yeah there's been times too where i've been out like taking pictures of the bison herd and like i get a little maybe i i'm pushing it a little bit but i keep my truck between me and the buffalo yeah. usually to yeah. like you know set it on there and you know i don't know if that's a thing i should be doing or not but and then people that aren't from here will see me and then they go a little bit closer and then someone goes a little bit closer than them and then a little bit yeah. closer than them. And then it's like, they're like across the road from this thing. And it's just like, what are, what are we doing people? Yeah. Yep. Happens all the time. And I don't even know, like what, what is, what is something that could happen to like change that, that pattern of people getting too close? Um, like on I mean, the whole, I, like I where sp- people actually like suppose, get it. I suppose they could start finding people. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they say bisons, I think you have to be 25 yards away from them in the park. Yeah. Bears, you need to be 100 yards away in the park. Yeah. Um, but I've never heard of anybody getting fined. You know, I just don't see it. Uh, and granted, I mean, it's just common sense. You know, I, I'll i still tell somebody, hey, you're way too close, even though, I might look like an idiot and they might yell at me and you know, everybody else who might be the tourist there might be thinking, well, that guy's just overreacting. But yeah, those of us who live here have seen it. Mm -hmm. Some of us, us have been charged by bison Mm -hmm. Um, and moose. I mean, moose, when we go in the back country, I don't really worry that much about bear as much as I do moose. Yeah. I've had far more issues with moose. Yeah. I, yeah. I've been charged by a moose before too. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. Do you do any do you do any backcountry skiing? Uh used to, but I I don't really do much anymore. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz I was I've always been I've always thought like I see plenty of moose when I'm out I split board, but yeah. like when I'm skinning, I I'm like what would happen if like a moose popped out like right next to me? Like I can't move fast enough in my split board. Right. Right. And since you have the skins on, you can't like slide down very fast either. So I couldn't even like right. whip around and get out of there. Like I don't even. What do they say you're supposed to do? Well, pepper spray is pretty good for that. I mean, they've got some pretty large nostrils. That yeah. Can take in a lot of pepper spray. Yeah. So I've used I've used pepper spray many times on moose, and it works great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long? Yeah. How far uh, was the range of the the pepper spray thing that that we tried when I went? I was at the. I mean, you're range? you're generally looking at five to seven yards. Yeah. Where, where you've got a it was disappointing. Good fog. Yeah, it is disappointing. And it's it wasn't like a hose kind of yeah. a consistency. It was like a big like cologne spray, yeah. like a like an axe body spray yeah. can kind of yeah. a consistency, but just that far and it was orange or it's is it normally orange? Uh, it depends on the manufacturer. There are mm. some that put a blue dye in it, some in orange. Mm. It's not colored normally, you know, naturally, but. Um, they put that in there so you can at least see where your fog is going. Oh, yeah. But uh, I, I remember spraying a moose, emptying two cans on it, and it had a blue nose at the end. Mm. And it was one of those off-brands. I won't mention the brand. But yeah. I will say there are two brands 
that I have had good success with, and that's UDAP and Counter Assault. Both mm-hmm. of those are very good brands. Yep. Yeah, that was your recommendation to me too. When yeah. We were, yeah. Um, and and uh, what we did as a part of my little training, he you brought uh, what would you call that? Uh, like the tester, the inert can, inert can. Yeah. It's, it just has like water in it or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's not going to so hurt no... you. You're not going to burn from it, but yeah. you're going to get an idea of how far and how long uh, it can spray. Yeah. So you typically, in your normal bear spray can, you have about seven seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and the recommendation is to do one second bursts, and you're aiming towards the feet of the bear um, because it's that whole concept of action is quicker than reaction. In other words, the bear its actions towards you are much faster than your reaction to it. Mm-hmm. So if you're aiming at the feet, even if you are, you know, that fog hits the feet, the bear's going to run right into the fog bank. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, so so the thing you brought, it, you can either buy them like the, a single use one, or you said there might be a refillable one. Well, the refillable is what we use for our inert testers. We, yeah. We've actually come up with a way to do that. Okay. So we can refill them so you're not spending 15 bucks a pop to do it. Yeah, but like you can get them on, on like Amazon even, these, yeah, these you, cans. Yeah, you can get both inert cans as well as, as the regular pepper spray cans. And I do recommend anybody that's you know wanting to, to utilize one of these in the backcountry for their safety – Buy an inert can as well yeah. and get a feel for how you take that safety off so that you know exactly what it feels like, exactly how much pressure it takes to pull that that little locking uh, key off, mm-hmm. um, how hard it is to press the button, you know, the trigger, so to speak. Um, most people are surprised that it's either too easy or too hard or whatever. Mm-hmm. So knowledge is going to be power in this instance. I mean, if you're using this to save your life, it's probably worth fifteen bucks to spend to, to get a tester. To yeah, get yeah, a, to practice it. Can. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I was gonna recommend getting one of them because I don't know why it took me so long to do it for the first time. I've been talking about like taking one of my actual bear spray cans and going out somewhere that I could safely yeah. spray it, yep. just to be like, yep. you know, if I have to spray this in a real situation, I should probably know what's going on. Yeah, because I've seen, I've, I mean, just being in these mountains, you just will run into bears. Yeah, it's just a kind of a of thing. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Death taxes and seeing bears in Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I told you. I told you about the story though, where the dogs treed a black bear, right? No. Did I tell you that? Uh-huh. So we were up. We were mountain biking on Phillips Ridge a couple of summers ago, and up to where you get up to where the uh, where the power lines are, and you kind of yeah. just zigzagging on the forest road, and they go into the. They just dart into the brush like chasing a bird or something or a squirrel, like they do all the time. Yep. And. Uh, I look over and instead of a squirrel shooting up the tree, a black bear shoots up wow. the tree. And then I'm like, oh, shit, 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 yeah, shit, yeah, boys, yeah. get back here. And they came back to me and yeah. I'm like, I have my bear spray in my hand. I'm just like shaking oh, yeah. in my hand. I'm like, oh, God, because I didn't get a great look, but it didn't seem like it was a full adult. So I was like, right. was that a baby yeah. or a young one? And is there mom around? Exactly. Good and I'm question. like, sat on a swivel, like I'm freaking out. <laughs> and then it's be- it's below me on the trail. So like to get out, I would have had to pass it. Yeah. So like, oh, shit, what do I do? <laughs> I can't like up Phillips Ridge would be like, you know, 10 miles yeah, to get to the yeah. bench. And I'm like, okay, just get a little bit away, get in some space. And then I just sat there, made sure the boys were on me, had my pepper spray in my hand, <laughs> shaking. And then eventually it just comes down and goes off down, down yeah. the slope. I was like, okay, I need to get the hell out of here. Yeah. And I'd make my way down with bear spray in my hand, like riding or like this. So I get out the back brake, riding like this, like if I need to, like keeping yeah. the dogs right on me. But yeah, I don't know if they just startled it and it was like 
that surprised where it didn't want to do anything to them but like yeah we got they got lucky well that's that's a pretty thick area for black bears on top of phillips ridge yeah so the, the two areas that i see black bear the most are up phillips ridge mm-hmm. and um oh going up garnet canyon go like you're really? going up to climb the grand or you're going up to yeah. amphitheater yeah or... i come the middle of this summer twice oh, yeah yeah so lots of bears black bears primarily like above the like in garnet canyon or like I've seen them anywhere from where Lupin Meadows uh, Trail, where it meets the um, the Valley Floor Trail right there yeah. at that junction point going up towards Amphitheater. Mm-hmm. Anywhere from there, typically on up to the Meadows area. Wow. Um, you know, before you ascend up to, to Lower Saddle, if you're going up the Grand or if you're starting up the, the uh, I don't know what that Coolar is going up to the left, going up to Middle and South. Uh, well, the the but one I, going up to the top of the middle is called the Southwest Coolar. Okay. And then you, it, they just call it like another lower saddle, okay. I think, because there's a saddle then between the middle and the south too. Yeah. So one time climbing the middle for me, I saw tracks at eleven thousand feet crossing <laughs> the snowfield, oh which gosh. is the highest I've seen around here. That was kind of bizarre. Yeah. It was black bear tracks though. So. Yeah. Oh, I've got to go in for you. A buddy of mine who was split boarding up in i think it was avalanche canyon like yeah. like a month ago or three weeks ago right he saw we will he saw, he took a picture of a bear print and we took it we looked it up on the internet and it was we think it was a black bear print right why was there a black bear walking around in january so it's somewhat of a myth that that bears will hibernate for the whole winter uh-huh. they'll come out once or twice a month as i understand it mm-hmm. Um, to go to their food caches. So when you find these food caches in the fall, yeah. which can be really dangerous places like a half-buried moose, a half-buried deer, something like that, um, they'll come out towards t- to those in the winter uh, to get food. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they're not sleeping the whole, yeah. the whole winter. And I, I've also heard too recently that they don't really like sleep. Like they don't like you're not they're not like taking a nap like the whole time like yeah yeah because common knowledge they're yeah. just they just totally s- slow all their bodily functions down, yeah so they are they just like I wish we could do that for the winter yeah are they just like are <laughs> well, they just like awake like kind of conscious or like how, what is that I don't have a like? clue <laughs> yeah that's bears are so freaking yeah. weird yeah I don't, I don't worry as much about them in the winter well I don't really worry about them at all I'm yeah. you know I have more of a concern. Springtime's probably the biggest. I mean, yeah. you're going out. They're they're very lean coming out of their hibernation. They're looking for food. They've um, the females typically will have young with them. Yeah, you know, so they're going to be very protective. Uh, everything's wet then, so you're not making noise going through a lot of that foliage. Mm-hmm. Unlike in the fall, where everything's crunch, crunch, crunch. Yeah. Um, so and and other areas that you kind of want to avoid if you can. Uh, are waterways because when you're near the water that noise is masking your sound as well Mm -hmm. and that's a common area for for bears to go after other other game yep um because every animal has to yeah every animal has to come down for water yeah um so that's their area they can go and they're the biggest meanest predator out there you know yeah definitely yeah, well, so we're at uh, an hour and 18 minutes. We'll wrap this up a little bit here and get done. But um, I want your last story to be the story of the uh, the study that, uh, like, the DNR or whoever did here, Forest Rangers did here, uh, where they were tracking bears and then they gave tracking things to hunt elk hunters. Okay. And that, yeah, 
That one? Remember yeah. That one? So the Game and Fish, um, this was probably five, I'm guessing five to seven years ago, they gave um, transmitters to hunters that were hunting on the elk refuge. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember whether they told them what they were d- using it for or not, but mm-hmm. but the idea was that they would have a location of where the hunters were at all times, but they were also tracking grizzly bears in that area. Mm-hmm. And they found that it was a high percentage. Um, boy, I I probably shouldn't quote it, but it, it was well above 50%. Yeah, I thought, um, I thought you said like, like if if it was twenty guys that did it too, it was like eighteen out of twenty. Yeah, it, it was a significantly yeah. high percentage. Yeah, another yeah. one we should Google. Yeah, um, but a, a significantly high number of hunters that were hunting from the moment they entered onto the elk refuge to the moment they left the elk refuge, they were being paralleled by grizzly bears. Yeah, and didn't obviously know it. And so what they realized was that grizzly bears are habituated to that human activity. Mm-hmm. And my kind of theorizing on this is you know these bears see these big pumpkin men coming out <laughs> onto the refuge you know yeah. orange orange outfits yeah and then they hear a gunshot and and they're like okay if we wait you know it seems like about an hour bob we go <laughs> in after about an hour there's always a gut pile after the pumpkin man leaves yeah and uh so that's how they're you know that was one of their ways of getting food yeah we just conditioned them to like exactly. it was like pavlov exactly exper- pavlov's experience yep. experiment but with bears but that kind of makes you a little nervous if you're out there, you know, hiking or hunting. <laughs> yeah. You know, what, how much is that happening that we really don't know about? Yeah. Yeah. If anybody's other who hasn't seen a bear, bear in the wild, they've yeah. seen you. Yeah. Yeah. Or mountain lions. Up, yeah. Same thing up Phillips Ridge, a great area for mountain lions. Jeez. I, I was just saying how much fun <laughs> I've had up there. I bike there all the time. I ski there all the time. I yeah. see a lot of moose there. Um, apparently every animal that's it's dangerous. Awesome place. <laughs> yeah. Apparently every animal is dangerous is there. That's right. Yeah. All right. Um, we'll wrap this up here. Um, so yeah, everybody, anybody out there who wants to get a little bit more knowledge about backcountry safety or firearms or just wants to have a fun experience, um, on the gun range, check out, what is it? Jackson hole Jackson shooting, hole shooting, experience. shooting experience. Yeah. Um, and say you prefer Scott, but they're probably all awesome. great guys. Yeah, <laughs> they are. Um, and if you need his number or anything, uh, just text me, message me, and we, I can get you connected. Um, Scott, anything else you'd like to say to the audience? Well, I appreciate the time. Uh, love Jackson Hole. Um, I can't imagine living anywhere else. And yeah, it's a very, very unique community here. Definitely. Uh, yeah, for sure. Love the people that I get to meet here. Definitely. So thank you. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that'll be it. That's an episode. Thanks everyone for doing it. Bye.